National Trust Magazine, Spring 2019. Hello and welcome to the spring issue of National Trust magazine. I'm Alan Power, head gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire. I also present some of the National Trust podcasts. Today I'll be taking you through some of the highlights of the spring magazine, including news, features, letters from Trust members, and I'll also be chatting to some of the Trust staff, writers and experts who've contributed to this issue. First up then is National Trust magazine editor Sally Palmer with her spring letter. Welcome to this audio edition of the Spring 2019 issue of National Trust magazine. Here at the Trust, we look after many extraordinary landscapes. Some have witnessed key moments in history when people came together for their voices to be heard. At Kinder Scout in the Peak District, mass trespassers gathered to protest against a lack of access to open countryside. In the fields of Runnymede in Surrey, King John is said to have sealed Magna Carta, the early Charter of Rights. You will hear stories of these places and more, and find out about People's Landscapes, our year-long national series of events, exhibitions and debates. This issue, we'd like to highlight the importance of the forthcoming Environment Bill. Alongside other conservation charities, we want to help ensure protections are in place for nature, now and into the future. I hope you enjoy the other articles in this audio issue too. Listen out for the touring exhibition of our Dutch art as it arrives at Petworth in West Sussex and find out which unusual item from our collections has been chosen by one of our curators. Thanks, Sally. That was National Trust magazine editor Sally Palmer with her spring letter. And now for the news roundup. Here's Glenn McCready and Olivia Vinall to tell you about what's been going on around the Trust. A pioneering five-year agricultural project is transforming a stretch of coastal farmland at Rossilli in West Glamorgan into a haven for nature. Trust rangers and 80 dedicated volunteers have restored the 12th-century patchwork of fields on the Vile, creating 2,000 metres of new banks and hedgerows, which are perfect for wildlife. Farmers removed the traditional field system after the Second World War as more intensive farming methods gained favour, reducing the number of fields from 17 to just six. The newly restored fields have been planted with arable and flower crops, including 400,000 sunflowers, poppies, lavender and lupins. The banks protect the crops and wildlife from the wind. The changes have already seen numbers of some species boosted by up to 300%. Countryside manager Alan Kersley-Evans says, It's fantastic to see such results in just the first year of returning to farming sustainably. What we are doing could also be applied to large intensive farms. We aim to prove in a few years just how viable this method is and to showcase the many benefits it delivers. Every meal and pint bought at the Hunter's Inn pub in North Devon will now contribute to the Trust's conservation work in the surrounding Hedden Valley. The pub, acquired by the Trust last summer, has been popular with visitors to the area since the 19th century. Today, the valley is home to species such as the endangered high-brown fritillary butterfly, which will be helped by the income. The Trust is working with Barnsley Council and the Northern College to secure the future of Grade 1 listed Wentworth Castle Gardens in South Yorkshire. The gardens, which closed to the public in 2017, are one of our greatest 18th century landscapes. 
Once legal agreements are finalised, the Trust plans to enter a 25-year lease and reopen the gardens by this summer. Cork Abbey in Derbyshire is working with the University of Leicester on a new project called Humankind to explore how cultural organisations can help combat loneliness. The project re-examines Colk's history, which has long been associated with isolation, and helps people experience Colk in ways that prompt acts of kindness. Back in 2015, seeds from Sir Isaac Newton's apple tree at Woolsthorpe Manor in Lincolnshire spent a stint in microgravity on the International Space Station with astronaut Tim Peake. To our delight, they have germinated into eight saplings. Our team at Woolsthorpe is working with the UK Space Agency and Kew to find organisations to look after the new trees and inspire the next generation of Newtons. A previously extinct butterfly, the Large Blue, had its best-ever summer in 2018. Numbers at Collard Hill in Somerset are believed to have doubled last year, thanks to optimal weather and to conservation work. The UK's largest winter roost of the common pipistrelle bat has been found at Seton Deleville Hall in Northumberland. It was thought that the bats prefer to hibernate in damp, dark conditions, but Seton is dry and well-lit. And Trust Rangers have released 150 water voles to a stretch of river on the Hunnicutt Estate in Exmoor, where they have been extinct for more than 30 years. Water voles are the UK's fastest declining land mammal. Those were some highlights from the news section. And now in the studio to read her spring letter is Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director General. Judgment is a really important thing in the National Trust. Knowing when to stand up for the things that really matter to us as a conservation charity and knowing when to toe the line can be a really difficult call. Over the years, we've taken a stand on a small number of issues that have had a direct impact on the places that we care for. The most recent was our petition against changes to planning policy in 2011. We believed then that they represented a really serious threat to our places. But never before has the opportunity to secure a healthy and a beautiful environment for future generations been at such a crossroads. Brexit, with all of its complexities and challenges, presents a chance for government and the wider public to do the right thing. Because it is so closely aligned with our charitable purpose to protect places of natural beauty, we are once again unashamedly using our voice to stand up for nature. Sometimes this voice is a quiet whisper, a small change at one of our places that will have a really big impact in the future. In September, we released 150 water voles in the Honeycutt Estate on Exmoor. They were last seen in the 1980s, after which, sadly, human activity drove them to extinction. It's a joy to see them busy burrowing into muddy banks and we hope that they will soon be a feature of life at Honeycutt once again. The claws in these tiny creatures help shape the riverbanks and over time they'll create the conditions for other animals and plants to thrive. They're a really good example of how a seemingly small contribution can be amplified into something much greater when we work together. Other times we need to use our voice to shout, making big commitments. I did just that last August when I announced that we were putting £10 million behind Riverlands, a project to transform the health of seven of our river catchments. 
Did you know that only 17% of England's rivers are in good health? And we think the only way to change this for good is to reconnect people with their rivers. Over the coming months, we'll be offering opportunities for you to help us look after them. While we're doing lots of policy work to lobby for change, your support is vital. We need everyone to play their part, however small, in caring for nature. I hope this edition gives you lots of ideas of how you can help. In particular, I would draw your attention to the importance of the forthcoming Environment Bill and what the Trust is calling for in ensuring it protects our wildlife and landscapes. Standing up for the places that matter will continue as a theme this year across our properties. Our 2019 national programme, People's Landscapes, will explore the legacy and significance of the places where people came together to seek social change. It would be good to think that in another 200 years, future generations will reflect on the places where we stood together today to help nature thrive. And that was Hilary McGrady, the Trust Director General. Hilary mentioned in her letter the new Environment Bill. Joining me on the line now is Patrick Begg, the Trust's Outdoors and Natural Resources Director, to discuss why this bill is so important. So Patrick, it's my understanding that the UK is currently part of an EU-wide legal system that protects our environment. What's different about this Environment Bill? Uh, This Environment Bill would allow us to provide some wider protections and to sketch out a lot more ambition about how we want to not just protect, but restore our natural environment. So it gives us the opportunity to create quite a visionary path and to chart a course towards what the government and we all believe, which is that we should be a generation that leaves the environment in a better state than we inherited it. We're also really keen that the government doesn't have the opportunity to give an independent oversight to all of this protection, So what we're really keen on is an independent watchdog that will allow us as citizens to ask questions of people who we think might be doing the wrong thing or polluting, but also with the powers and the teeth to actually hold those polluters to account. Um, And the the government have promised us a bill already, Patrick. So we're, by the sounds of what you're saying, we're looking for a more ambitious kind of drive behind this environment bill. We are, exactly. Um, it's great news that we've, we've got a commitment to have a bill, um, but what we, what we really want is to zero in on some very specific aspects around that ambition. For example, to have in law some really stretching targets around the kind of restoration of habitat or restoration of species that we've seen in the government's 25-year plan for the environment. But of course, a plan doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be done. Um, So we would like to see some of the targets in that and enshrined in legislation. Another bit would be to see some key principles which have been set at a European level up till now, but which we would be concerned if they weren't carried through into UK law. So a good illustration of that would be something that we call the precautionary principle, which is, to give a simple example, that we wouldn't simply allow largely untested chemicals be used in controlling pests in agriculture. Uh, The precautionary principle would make sure that we were absolutely sure that there weren't any unfortunate or unintended consequences to nature in adopting those kinds of chemicals. That's amazing to listen to, Patrick, and adding that sense of legality to protecting the environment is is so essential nowadays. And will the Environment Bill cover the whole of the UK? It, It won't. So what we're looking for is either 
the different constituent parts of, of the UK, Northern Ireland, Wales, um, England and Scotland, to band together. However, if that is politically difficult, then what we're looking for is at least every member state within the UK to adopt similar legal frameworks. Patrick, thanks a million for joining us today. And, you know, it's been really enlightening to, to listen to the detail. Now, on the 20th of October, the 124th AGM of the National Trust was held at Steam, the Museum of the Great Western Railway in Swindon. Anthony Lambert reported on the day, and the article is read by Glenn McCready. Brilliant autumn sun bathed Swindon all day for the AGM, attended by 310 members with 360 people watching the live webcast. Chair Tim Parker stressed the vital role of the Trust in today's complex world. There was much to celebrate with both record membership at 5.2 million and visitor numbers of 26.5 million, and Tim thanked everyone who had made these achievements possible. Though the record numbers of visitors last year is a measure of success, Tim acknowledged the stress it places on visitor facilities. This is being addressed by a £100 million loan to invest in new visitor buildings and infrastructure, ensuring membership fees remain devoted to conservation. He reflected on the challenges of balancing the often conflicting demands of conservation and public access, the historic environment and the pressures of modern society. We are investing £30 million on renewable sources of energy to reduce our carbon-based consumption. In partnership with other organisations, we are addressing urban challenges such as the care of parks and the need to save landmark buildings. Some issues continue to arouse controversy, such as trail hunting and the Stonehenge Tunnel. Tim stressed that the Trust would revoke trail hunting licences if its rules were contravened, and that it would only support a tunnel scheme at Stonehenge that protected the World Heritage Site. At her first AGM as Director-General, Hilary McGrady described how her love of nature had been fostered during her childhood through troubled times in Belfast, which helped her appreciate the power of nature to make a difference to people's lives. Hilary reinforced her commitment to the Trust's strategy, playing our part, and her desire to widen the Trust's appeal. Harnessing people's passions was essential to the Trust's work in cities. Helping people save Wentworth Castle Gardens in South Yorkshire, Moseley Road Baths in Birmingham, and giving Newcastle's parks a sustainable future. Hillary also stressed the importance of research and high-quality interpretation to the presentation of our places. At Croom in Worcestershire, this took an unusual form by using the responses of 35 autistic children to create a sensory map. Our finances were healthy, and our operating margin target was exceeded by £10 million. But demands on it were heavy, with roof repairs at the Vine in Hampshire and Castle Drogo in Devon costing £5.4 million and £13 million respectively. The chair took questions on subjects including accessibility, ethical investment, plastics and the restoration of Lansdowne Monument at Cheryl in Wiltshire. A member's resolution was proposed that would halt the use of barbed wire on trust land. It was recognised that the incident prompting the motion was rare and the pros and cons of alternatives were discussed. The motion was not carried. The AGM concluded with three uplifting talks about the Trust's work for nature. Glenn McCready there on the 124th AGM of the National Trust.
If you'd like to hear a recording of the event, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash features forward slash annual dash general dash meeting. Now for our cover feature, People's Landscapes. From the home of Magna Carta at Runnymede in Surrey to the Toll Puddle Martyrs Tree in Dorset, the Trust is proud to look after landscapes where people have come together to shape the history of our nation. This year, 200 years after the massacre of peaceful protesters at Peterloo in Manchester, we'll be uncovering stories of passion and protest hidden just beneath the surface at Trust Places. Olivia Vinall gets us started by reading the introduction to the article, written by Rachel Lennon, the National Trust's curator for People's Landscapes. On the 16th of August, 1819, over 60,000 working men, women and children gathered at St Peter's Field in Manchester to hear orator Henry Hunt talk about political reform and universal male suffrage. Some had travelled on foot for more than 30 miles from nearby towns and villages to hear him speak. The magistrates, fearing rebellion, called in the military to arrest Hunt and clear the field. Sources differ, but in the disorder that followed, approximately 18 people, including a child, were killed, and around 700 people were injured. The massacre became known as Peterloo, an ironic nod to the Battle of Waterloo just four years earlier. St Peter's Field itself is now part of central Manchester, but you can find Peterloo's footprints on nearby places in Trust Care. Dunham Massey in Cheshire was home to George Harry Gray, 6th Earl of Stamford and Warrington, and head of the Cheshire Magistrates and Militia. His militia took part in the charge, although Gray himself was not present. Industrialist Samuel Gregg, meanwhile, who built nearby Quarry Bank, witnessed the massacre with his son Robert, who later gave testimony, criticising the establishment's response. Some of their mill workers might also have attended, marching across the landscape alongside other working communities towards the demonstration that would end with such violence. The legacy of Peterloo, a critical moment in democracy, echoes down the centuries as a symbol of the power of people coming together in a landscape to make their voices heard. That's why the Trust is marking its 200th anniversary through People's Landscapes, a national series of events and exhibitions offering glimpses into debates of the past and exploring some of the complexities facing landscapes today. Olivia Vinall there. Joining me now to discuss the People's Landscapes programme is Tom Freshwater, the Trust's Head of Public Programmes. Now, Tom, tell me, why is it important to mark this anniversary? Well, as part of our public programmes, we're keen to look at the stories that sit behind the places that we look after. Part of looking after is really to take care of these stories and pass them on to people for the future. Uh, And so thinking about 200 years since uh, 2019, which is the Peterloo Massacre, which actually our research really revealed that some people are really beginning to forget about. Certainly it's a very North story. And we wanted to explore how people coming together in different landscapes that we look after, people actually wanted to create social change in, in their places. And do you think for the people visiting these amazing landscapes, it makes a difference to their visit and their understanding of the history of the place if we, if we try and highlight and make sure, like you said, these anniversaries are properly remembered? I think so. I think it helps people have a richer understanding of what happened there, what took place beneath their feet in that landscape. I know certainly for myself, when I visited with my family, we can have a lovely day out 
Um, and then in, subsequently you find out particular facts or stories that you think, if only I'd known that when I was there, then I would have got more out of my day, really. So we're trying to just draw attention to this and encourage people to think about it, explore a bit deeper themselves. I always call them kind of key moments to myself. You kind of catch sight of something and you think, wow, and it takes you down into that extra depth of understanding of a place. Absolutely. And it's been one of the fun things about helping get this programme off the ground is to go and visit some of them and really talk to the teams there about why these places are important to people today. And within the people's landscapes, what's happening as part of the whole programme? So we're looking at the um, Peterloo story as a sort of a foundation story for the whole year. And people will probably know about the film that's just been created, the Mike Lee director, and he's actually written in our guidebook, introducing why it's important to remember these stories that happened where people were wanting to seek change. And so we looked across the wide range of our places that we look after and we've highlighted places like Runnymede, where obviously the Magna Carta was sealed, a foundation story of our whole country's system of law. But there are also places that really connect to our conservation mission. So the Kinder Scout mass trespass in 1932 really meant that it was part of a series of protests where people, workers from a local industrial towns, wanting access to get fresh air and green space for themselves Actually, those protests led to 1949 Act of Parliament to help then create national parks. And in fact, the, the, a lot of the green space that people can enjoy today is as a result of those, those challenges from then. And it, it is important to acknowledge them, isn't it? Because like you said, whether it's Magna Carta or different protests that have happened over the years, it, that kind of checkerboard of, of history just puts our society together nowadays. Absolutely. And so some of these stories are you know, from hundreds of years ago. So the Runnymede story, some are from less than 100 years ago. Peterloo's 200 years before that, Toll Puddle from 1834. Uh, so, in fact, there's a whole range of, of touching points that go back in time. So, Tom, tell me, why is it important to mark the anniversaries? It's important that we preserve the history that we have in our landscapes. Often we can have a very nice day out and, and a social time together, but actually if you know the stories of the history that happened there beneath your feet, it can be a really powerful moment for us. And in fact, it goes back to our founding principles of the trust of the benefits of green space and accessing landscape that Octavia Hill was so passionate about. So it's the foundation of our organisation. Absolutely, yes. Tom, that's been fascinating and thank you so much for joining us today and coming in for a chat. Thank you. Now, over the next few minutes, you'll hear three stories of places in our care and why they are people's landscapes. Some of them remain places of modern pilgrimage to this day. The articles are read by Glenn McCready and Olivia Vinall. Access and Ownership Kinder Scout Mass Trespass, Derbyshire A weekend ramble across open countryside, walking whichever way the wind takes you, is a pleasure many of us can take for granted today. But it wasn't always the case. From the time of Tudor enclosures, access to land became gradually more restricted. By the early 20th century, Interest in the countryside had grown, and people began to demand the freedom to roam their local landscapes. The countryside around the industrial cities of Manchester and Sheffield, including the Peak District Moorland, was central to this movement. People from these urban areas looked to it as a place of refreshment and respite. Trespasses at Winter Hill Bolton in 1896, cared for today by the Woodland Trust, and in 1907 at Bleaklow in the Peak District, helped pave the way for future action. But it was the willful mass trespass of Kinder Scout that really resonated with future generations of ramblers and activists. On the 24th of April, 1932, 
three groups of walkers from Manchester and Sheffield set out to deliberately trespass on Kinder Scout, the highest point in the Peak District. They wanted to highlight the unfairness of the lack of access for working people to this open countryside. At the time, it was owned by the wealthy Ninth Duke of Devonshire, who used it primarily for grouse shooting. The walkers approached Kinder Scout from different directions at the same time. The group from Manchester ran into gamekeepers and a violent scuffle took place. Five of the leaders, including the passionate access campaigner Benny Rothman, were arrested. They were jailed for riotous behaviour, as trespass was not a criminal offence. The Kinder Scout mass trespass is remembered today as a crucial milestone in the fight for ordinary people to access the countryside, no doubt helped by the high profile of the court action against the leaders, which was widely reported in the press at the time. However, the fight didn't end there. A few weeks after the Kinder Scout trespass, 10,000 ramblers assembled in a rally on Winnett's Pass, some five miles south of Kinder, to maintain the pressure on authorities. It was the largest gathering of walkers in history. It was a long and hard-won victory, but in 1949, the government passed the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act, acknowledging the need to take action on the issues of access and conservation. This year marks 70 years since that act was passed, and there are now 13 national parks in England and Wales. Fittingly, the Peak District National Park was the first to be designated in 1951. The Trust now looks after 15,000 hectares, 37,066 acres of it, including the historic trespass sites of Kinder Scout, Winnett's Pass and Bleaklow. Land continues to be gifted to the Trust to look after to this day. In 2013, the National Trust launched our 50-year vision to regenerate the High Peak Moors. It includes planting 5,000 native trees in the upper Derwent Valley, working to protect birds of prey such as the threatened hen harrier and improving the health of the area's characteristic peat bogs. The Peak District's rambling community remains very active, with routes back to the original trespassers. Its members work closely on issues of access and conservation with the Trust and the other organisations looking after the area. Every April, they still gather to remember the events of 1932. Today, open access to land is still not a given across the whole of the UK. In Northern Ireland, there is no right to roam, and much of the countryside is in private hands, with few rights of way. National Trust land, therefore, provides access to the countryside for thousands of people. The National Trust's teams in Northern Ireland are working in partnership with local landowners and organisations to expand and create new access routes and footpaths for future generations. Democracy and Freedom, the Tollpuddle Martyrs Tree in Dorset. Every year, in the third week of July, some 10,000 people descend on the village of Tollpuddle in rural Dorset for the Tollpuddle Martyrs Festival, a weekend of political debate, entertainment, music and comedy to celebrate the trade union movement. It's a quintessential English scene and hardly a likely festival site, yet here, on the small village green stands a veteran sycamore tree, which today stands as a symbol of trade unionism. In 1834, six agricultural workers and their families, like many around the country, lived in extreme poverty and were exploited by their employers. 
the men formed a friendly society of agricultural workers to bargain for better working conditions and pay. The local landowner had them arrested for swearing a secret oath. They were sent to Shire Hall in nearby Dorchester for trial, convicted and sentenced to seven years' penal transportation to Australia. There was outcry across the country, with thousands of protesters marching through London and an 800,000 signature petition demanding the martyrs be freed. After two years, the government relented and the men returned home, although only one, James Hammett, stayed in Tolpuddle. The Tolpuddle tree and green, which is registered common land, were given to the trust by businessman Sir Ernest Ridley Debenham in 1934 to mark the centenary of the Tolpuddle martyrs' transportation. Democracy and Freedom, Runnymede and Magna Carta in Surrey The peaceful water meadows of Runnymede in Surrey are the site of a legal agreement that influenced countries around the world. It is widely thought to have been here, on the 15th of June 1215, that King John was forced to seal a document called the Charter of Liberties, known as Magna Carta. It gave rights to his barons and enshrined them in law. Although it had little legal impact at the time, King John had it repealed by the Pope almost immediately afterwards. The significance of the 63 clauses it contained has resonated down the centuries. Magna Carta held that even the king was not above the law. Clauses 39 and 40, preventing imprisonment without trial and guaranteeing justice for all, have had a lasting impact on human rights worldwide. By the 18th century, Magna Carta had become one of the world's main constitutional documents, inspiring the constitutions of countries such as the US and India, and later, the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But the preservation of this historic site was not a given. During the 1920s, the threat loomed of the sale of 99 acres of Runnymede land by the government to pay off war debts. Helena Normanton, the first female barrister to practice in England, spearheaded the campaign to save it, founding the Magna Carta Society in 1922. The site was bought by Lady Fairhaven in 1929, who donated it to the Trust in 1931, in memory of her husband, Urban Broughton, MP. Today, Runnymede is a place of quiet contemplation, and only the handful of artworks and monuments reveal the significance of the events that have taken place here. Exciting changes are afoot, however, as a £2.1 million project, supported by HLF, will soon be underway to better connect the Runnymede landscape with the equally ancient Anchorwick across the River Thames. Some fantastic stories there about just three of the places in the Trust's People's Landscapes programme being celebrated this year. The article was written by the magazine's assistant editor, Helen Beer. Our next feature is called New Light on Old Masters. The Trust's first exhibition of Dutch paintings is on tour. After visiting the Holborn Museum in Bath and the Maritz House in The Hague, the Netherlands, it concludes this spring at Petworth in West Sussex. Curator David Taylor shares what it's like to organise such a significant touring exhibition. His words are read by Glenn McCready. The first time co-curator Rupert Goulding and I saw our pictures on the walls of the exhibition space at the Holborn Museum in Bath, beautifully arranged and dramatically lit, we knew all the hard work, sleepless nights and long days had been worthwhile. 
In National Trust Houses, our precious paintings are in their natural environment, a valuable part of the important room displays that include other elements of our collection. But when prized possessions, Dutch paintings from National Trust Houses, was ready to open its door to the first visitors, it took our breath away. Simply by putting the pictures into a more minimalistic museum space with brighter lighting, we could see these fantastic works of art in a completely different way. The Trust owns and cares for one of the largest historic and modern art collections in Britain, which includes over 13,000 paintings. We regularly lend works to museums around the world, but Prized Possessions is the first external exhibition of our own paintings for 23 years, and the first ever exhibition of our 17th-century Dutch pictures. It's been touring for six months, appearing first at the Holborn last summer and then at the Maritz House in The Hague, Netherlands, over winter. This spring, the world-class paintings arrive at our own Petworth in West Sussex. The idea for a touring exhibition of Dutch paintings came about following a conversation some years ago between Rupert, who has curatorial responsibility for Durham Park near Bath, and Jennifer Scott, then director of the Holborn. Durham is an English country house with particularly strong Dutch connections and an impressive collection of paintings, books and Delft ceramics. The nearby Holborn also has important Dutch pictures, so Rupert and Jennifer discussed the possibility of putting together an exhibition on this rich subject. Coincidentally, Rupert and I first met on a course in the Netherlands, where we were studying the Dutch country house. Later, when we became colleagues at the National Trust, the exhibition idea seemed such a good subject to work on together. We wanted the exhibition to explore why this type of art was so popular, why it was desired, commissioned and displayed here in Britain. The 17th century, when the Dutch found themselves in a period of national pride and confidence following independence from Spanish rule, is known as the Dutch Golden Age. As their nation grew wealthy through trade and empire, an increasing middle class wanted to commission and live with pictures, just like the aristocracy beforehand. At the time, many of the most successful artists in Britain came from the Low Countries, so British patrons were familiar with Dutch art, or art produced here by Dutch artists. After the 1688 Glorious Revolution, under William III and Mary II, we had a joint monarchy comprising a Dutch king and a queen who had lived her married life in the Netherlands, where she was greatly influenced by the culture. Dutch art became increasingly fashionable and ubiquitous in England in consequence, and British taste for collecting Dutch paintings has endured here for over 350 years. One of our first tasks was to choose the paintings to star in our show. This is a medium-sized exhibition, and we found it a challenge to select just 22. Some of the pictures we would have liked to have included were too big to move or transport safely. Others were set in panelling from which it would have been too difficult and potentially damaging to remove them. We took the advice of Christine Sitwell, the Trust's picture conservation advisor, to make sure the works we wanted to include were all fit for travelling and being shown in a brightly lit museum environment. Museums closely monitor light levels because of the damage long-term bright lighting can do, but even so, some of our paintings were unsuitable for display. For others, Christine recommended conservation treatment before the tour, including the removal of discoloured varnishes and specialist cleaning to show them at their best.
In the end, we narrowed down our initial wish list and focused on important examples of different types of Dutch painting from this time. Sometimes we were spoilt for choice, such as when it came to choosing portraits, as British collectors have always loved portraiture. We also chose a few tronies, the popular figurative Dutch pictures that show people playing a role or a type of person, such as a maid or a soldier, rather than being a straightforward portrait. We included Rembrandt's recently reattributed self-portrait wearing a feathered bonnet from Buckland Abbey in Devon. This trony made a stir in 2014 when it was sensationally added to the list of Rembrandt's autograph paintings after intensive technical analysis. The other important consideration was where to host the exhibition. The Trust wanted the tour to consist of one external British venue, one international venue and one national trust venue. We felt very fortunate to secure the Holborn to launch it, bringing full circle that initial conversation between Jennifer Scott and Rupert all those years ago. For our international host, we were thrilled to collaborate with the Maurits House in The Hague, the Netherlands, the home of the Dutch Royal Cabinet of Paintings and one of the best-loved collections of Dutch Golden Age pictures. Here, Dutch audiences would see the important National Trust pictures in the same visit as they'd see two of the most famous paintings in the world, Carol Fabricius's The Goldfinch and Johan Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring. And then there was our final location, when our exhibition would return to the National Trust. Neither Rupert nor I could think of a single place better suited to host than Petworth in West Sussex, which John Constable once called that house of art because of the magnificence of its collection. Petworth was the family seat of the Percys, the Seymours and the Wyndhams for nearly 900 years. Its own artistic golden age came in the 18th and 19th centuries, when it belonged to the second and third earls of Egremont, Charles Wyndham and his son George. Each had a huge collection of classical sculpture, porcelain, Dutch art and contemporary paintings, and supported the greatest young artists of their day. Charles employed Lancelot Capability Brown to lay out Petworth's gardens. George fostered the talent of J.M.W. Turner, who immortalised Brown's landscapes and many of Petworth's rooms in a private studio there. Today, Petworth has one of our finest collections of old master paintings, including magnificent Titians and Van Dyck's, and a strong reputation for the highly successful exhibitions shown there in recent years, including on Turner, Blake and Constable. The prized possessions exhibition is in Petworth's temporary exhibition gallery, and the works are just as beautifully arranged and lit as at the other locations on the tour. Alongside the exhibition, visitors can view selected other rooms in the main house featuring further Dutch paintings from Petworth's collection. There's also the famous Carved Room, featuring wooden carvings by the Dutch-born and Dutch-inspired Grinling Gibbons from the same period as the prized possessions paintings. Petworth has an exhibition of dramatically lit photography of Gibbons's carvings by the also-Dutch photographer and contemporary carver Peter Thuring. After seeing the Holborn exhibition, a visitor wrote to Rupert, We are sometimes told that the National Trust has one of the finest art collections in the country, rivalling the great national collections in London or Edinburgh. But unless you do what this exhibition has done, you cannot see the whole spectrum of the Trust's art collections. 
if it can be done for the Dutch masters of the 17th century, why not for Tudor painting, Georgian or Victorian portraits? Or silver or porcelain or whatever? It's a thought that inspires me too. What might we choose to take on tour next time? Glenn McCready there, reading the words of David Taylor, the National Trust Curator of Pictures and Sculptures. He was talking about the Prize Possessions exhibition of Dutch paintings on tour. And joining our editor Sally on the line now is Rupert Goulding, co-curator of the exhibition and lead curator for the Southwest. So Rupert, it's lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us. The exhibition has come home to Petworth House. You must be tremendously pleased with how well it's been received so far. Yes, extremely. Well, it's been a great honour to, to work on the exhibition and bring this collection together from across the Trust. And so it's been great working with our colleagues up and down the country, but also it's been great to work with the, the partner institutions we've worked with, so the Holborn in Bath and the Maritz House in The Hague. Have you noticed much difference in the visitors coming to the two locations? There has been a difference, yes. In Bath, people were really excited to see the collection brought together and that sense of seeing everything in one place was really special and the sort of moody and exciting lighting that they had kind of really added to to the sort of sense of, of something special happening. And in the Netherlands, it's been a bit different because most of the audience are Dutch or tourists and they're not as familiar with the National Trust and they've been sort of surprised and wowed by what actually is in Britain and in, and in our houses and really intrigued by that. Um, I wonder if you could talk us through a few of the paintings in the exhibition and also where they'll return to once the exhibition is over. Um, so in your article, you talk about the Elizabeth Stuart, the Queen of Bohemia, by Gerrit van Honsthorst from Ashdown House in Oxfordshire. Yeah. Oh, the portrait of Elizabeth Stuart, the Queen of Bohemia, by Gerrit van Honsthorst. Uh, that's from Ashdown House in just into Oxfordshire. It's quite actually quite near Swindon. And... That's actually a painting that I, I really love because it embodies so many interesting stories and the house itself is so fascinating as well. She was the Queen of Bohemia um, due to her husband, Prince Frederick V, who was the Elector of Palestine. Um, but they only had that monarchy for a relatively short amount of time, months, not years. And as a result, they ended up um, losing the crown and they had to live in exile in The Hague. So they became known as the Winter Queen and the Winter King. Um, and she had that title, the Winter Queen, for the rest of her life. Her husband died young as well, so she spent her time as you know as a widow for the rest of her life, and, and was often portrayed, usually portrayed in, in wearing widow's black. And in this portrait, she's also got the wonderful pearls on her dress and his earrings, which some of them were thought to be uh, wedding presents from her husband. But the portrait itself was owned by someone called the Earl of Craven, and he was a, a young soldier uh, uh, fighting alongside her husband. And he sort of pledged loyalty to the family and especially to Elizabeth after uh, Frederick's death and, and was really in love with her. And when she uh, came to Britain, he gave over his house rather for her in London. And uh, he built her Ashdown house as a hunting lodge. And she died before it was finished, so she never uh, saw the completed article but she left to Craven um, quite a lot of her paintings. Um, and so some of the, her collection is in that house that was made for her. So it's a, it's a very romantic story or captured in this one, in some ways, sombre portrait. 
It's a lovely story. And when you hear the story, you can see, because her eyes look like she knows things and she's seen things, and it's, it's very interesting to hear the background from that. One of the others you've chosen is the, the Tired Traveller. Um, you say it's a genre scene. Yeah, genre scenes are, are you know, scenes of, of everyday and real life. This painting is perhaps a little bit more edgy, we could say, because it's, it's describing um, or capturing a lot of sort of sexual tension within the scene. There is a man euphemistically called Tired. It's a very Victorian title where they kind of paint and paint over the sexual tension within it. He has arrived and he's sitting at uh, the table and a young servant girl is uh, coming uh, with it, offering him a drink. And so he kind of, rather than focusing on the wine, which is symbolic of, of a relationship, stares at her face, but she avoids his gaze. Uh, she's clearly not that interested in him. And there's this plucked rose, which is face down on the table. It's a slightly curious symbolism there. We're not entirely sure what it means. It probably alludes to the fact that this is going to be some unrequited love. But the artist really loved these types of scenes. He's very famous for them. And in fact, this very painting, there's a couple of other versions of it that exist where the amorous intent seems to be reciprocated. Just to finish up, at the end of the article, we referred to this letter that you received from one of the visitors to the Holborn exhibition. And they were musing on what you might take on tour next time. And we were wondering what you'd like to do next. Well, there's lots of discussions and ideas at the moment about future exhibitions. At the moment, we haven't got anything we can uh, announce. But I can certainly say that we are looking at all sorts of different and very interesting topics that we might be able to to, to take on tour, just to name a few perhaps that I'd be interested in seeing um, would be perhaps our Spanish collection, which is perhaps something kind of completely hidden away, but really wonderful pieces in the National Trust, or just looking at perhaps 20th century works of art or our architectural drawings. Uh, they're some of the topics that appeal to me. The Trust's got such a huge collection. We'll have to look out for whatever you decide to take on tour next. Rupert, thank you ever so much for speaking to thank us. Thank you very much. National Trust magazine editor Sally Palmer there, talking to Rupert Goulding. Prized Possessions, Dutch Paintings from National Trust Houses, is at Petworth in West Sussex from the 26th of January to the 24th of March 2019. Our third feature in this spring audio edition of the National Trust magazine is Future Paths. National Trust trainees share how their apprenticeships and training programmes have changed their lives. Their stories are read by Olivia Vinall and Glenn McCready. Callum was shy and struggled at school, but now classes his communication skills as one of his strengths. Former community health nurse Nigel is retraining as a gardener. Cassim was knocked sideways when his family moved from rural Scotland to inner-city Birmingham, but has reinvented himself as an environmental conservationist. Callum, Nigel, Cassim, and many others are finding happiness and life skills through apprenticeships and training schemes run by the National Trust and our partners. We work with others to help create new apprenticeship standards, making sure they're fit for purpose as well as offering the best opportunities. Apprenticeship manager Caroline Noon says, For some of our apprentices, the courses change their lives. Changes to apprenticeship entrance criteria in England in 2017 included removing the upper age limit of 24, which means we can look more holistically at the level and range of career opportunities we are able to offer.
Caroline explains, there is a wider breadth of course standards now, from the equivalent of GCSE through to master's level. That means we can give people opportunities at every stage of their career. The Trust is also part of the Apprenticeship Diversity Champions Network, where we work with other organisations to help us attract a wide range of talent. It means we can open more pathways into a career here, as well as providing a forum for sharing ideas. We need people with the specialist skills to look after our houses, collections, gardens and countryside. Training people and helping them to grow those skills keeps alive expertise built up over many lifetimes. But alongside those core areas of conservation, we also need people with skills in topics such as software development and catering. Caroline says, People don't think of the trust first when it comes to technology or cooking, but with 300 cafes and 11,000 staff using our IT network, we have a lot of opportunities. As well as offering apprenticeships, the Trust works with partners so we can offer qualifications through projects. One such is the Green Academies Project, or GAP. GAP is run in and around six urban locations across England and Wales as part of the £33 million Arbright Future Programme, funded by Big Lottery. It enables young people to develop skills to look after the green spaces where they live, improve their well-being and gain qualifications to help them become part of the future of nature conservation. I really believe in nurturing people in a way that supports the future of the Trust, says Caroline, to help shape the careers of people from all walks of life. People like Callum, Cassim, and Nigel is an amazing feeling. Callum Clamp Callum is nearing the end of his two-year Level 2 Customer Service Practitioner Apprenticeship and works in the cafe at Saltram in Devon. He says, At school, I always struggled with theory, coursework and writing because I'm better at learning by doing more practical things. With my apprenticeship, I'm supported in learning new skills, at first with someone there to teach me and then eventually I'm able to get the whole job done on my own. I started volunteering in the cafe at Saltram as part of my college course, at first one day a week, then gradually increasing my days. After seeing how dedicated I was, my manager began trying to organise an apprenticeship for me. I'm over halfway through my two-year apprenticeship now. I work front of house in the cafe serving customers, making hot drinks and clearing tables. Each day brings a new challenge, but I've learned how to face them and the job is really fun. I love getting to know visitors and their orders. I know all the regular customers and they love chatting with me. Communication is where my strength lies. I used to be really shy, but I'm so social now I feel like I can talk to anyone. I want to learn sign language so I can speak to our visitors with hearing difficulties. I'd like to be able to communicate with them properly rather than having to write everything down. During my GCSE in hospitality, I failed at decorating cakes. I was awful at piping. Through working in the kitchen at Saltram, I've practised those skills, and now it makes me really proud to see how much I've improved. In the future, I'd like to spend even more time in the kitchen. My dream is to open a cake or biscuit shop, so getting to work with the kitchen team as part of my course has been amazing. Confidence is the main thing I've learnt here, so if you want to grow in confidence, my advice is to apply for an apprenticeship. Emily Lockie Emily is doing a Level 3 Infrastructure Technician Apprenticeship at Helis, the National Trust's head office in Swindon. She says, 
I think a lot of people will be surprised to think of the National Trust as an exciting organisation to work for when it comes to IT infrastructure. But there is so much going on. You don't really realise until you're here how much IT underpins everything we do. I was working on a project recently for a property that wanted a camera set up for their biomass boiler so they could monitor the fuel level. It's amazing when you realise the different requirements that crop up. I've also worked on projects to deploy software updates and have helped colleagues solve their mobile phone issues. Each project might seem simple, but multiply this across the breadth of our properties and you can see that there is always a lot to do. I was drawn to the apprenticeship as I was looking for a role where I could grow. I've been interested in IT since school and I valued the National Trust. My parents have been members for years and I remember visiting trust places as a child. I wanted to do an apprenticeship, especially as I like the idea of being able to get industry-recognised qualifications while I was still working. It's the best of both worlds. I found the IT team here to be very friendly. I'm still getting used to a lot of the technical terms, but everyone is supportive. They welcome each person's individual skills, and there is always someone to ask if you have a question. Kasim McShane after three years taking part in the National Trust's Green Academies project, Kasim has a place on the Natural Prospects programme with the Birmingham and Black Country Wildlife Trust, studying environmental conservation level two. He says, As a child, I spent most of my life outside playing in the woods and rivers in rural Scotland. I wasn't inside very much. I had a games console, but I didn't use it unless it was raining. Then, when I was twelve, we moved to a house in Birmingham. It seemed there was nothing around me that was green, and I felt alien in this big concrete city. I'd been quite outgoing, but I lost my confidence and ability to talk to people. My school life has always been complicated. I'm a Roma gypsy and a Muslim, and I struggled to fit in at the small country school I went to before we moved to Birmingham. After a period of homeschooling, I got sick of academic learning and stopped doing any kind of schoolwork. As I got older, I realised I had to reconsider my future. Through the Birmingham Youth Service, I met the Trust's Green Academies Project GAP team, who encouraged me to get involved. At first I volunteered, then took part in the Level 1 Diploma in Land Management. Being part of GAP and working with the National Trust was great and helped me realise that natural landscape was closer than I thought. I loved being outside and learning to work with my hands, doing hedge laying and coppicing. They even organised a maths and English tutor for me to help me get my key skills. I was thrilled to be accepted onto the traineeship with the Wildlife Trust. I'm learning conservation in order to train as a ranger and learn how to teach these skills to others. Ultimately, I'd love to be a community ranger. I've worked with community projects in the past, for example in the outdoors with young adults with learning disabilities. Seeing the change in people who have taken part reminds me of how I used to be. Sometimes, someone comes along who is in their shell, and by the end of the day, they're joining in and enjoying themselves. Olivia Vinall and Glenn McCready there, reading the stories how the Trust's apprenticeship and training programmes have helped change their lives. And now joining me on the line is Nigel Cassin. Nigel is halfway through his two-year horticulture and landscape operative apprenticeship at Polston Lacey in Surrey. 
so Nigel, tell me, you've come to an apprenticeship later in life, kind of retraining after having a career already, haven't you? That's right, yeah. Yeah, I worked as a mental health nurse for 20 years prior to starting the apprenticeship in 2017. And Nigel, you're serving your time as an apprentice at Paulsden Lacey. Did you choose Paulsden? Was that part of your options during your application? Um, during my application, I was looking and like voluntary work and then I saw the apprentices came up, they changed the legislation about the age people who can apply for it. And I saw Poles and Lacey come up on the government website, so I just went for it. Now, there are apprenticeships to be served in all sorts of industries across the country. Why did you choose gardening? I worked in a nursery um, when I was at university first off and there's something I always thought about, but I sort of chose to go into nursing. Yeah, another sort of vocation as well, maybe, I'm not sure. Well, it's really nice in life to have the opportunity to do both. I mean, it's really challenging, isn't it? Leaving one career behind and then, as you say yourself, starting from scratch, you know, just especially in the horticultural industry, which is massive. And what what have you found the kind of biggest challenges in, in that transition through careers? Um, I think the biggest challenge has been retraining, going back to college and just learning all the, all the plant names and Latin names by binomial system and been a bit sort of fish out of water to begin with when I first started as an apprentice, just you know, working in the garden is a completely different environment to working, say, in a GP surgery or in a hospital ward. It's an amazing place to be in a horticultural career because it is so massive and diverse. You know, as you, as you say, the plant names, you know, the, the history behind the plants, the stories associated with the places you work in. It's a very, very exciting opportunity. And I've worked in National Trust Gardens for 24 years, I think it is, and in horticulture for over 30 years. And I have so many favourite things that I get up to. But what's your favourite part of your job so far? Um, the favourite part of my job is coming to work each day <laughs> and just work, working in a grade two listed garden at Polson. Really just, yeah, coming and seeing the landscape, the backdrop of the, the North Downs. It's just a variety as well. Each day is different. Well, it's lovely, isn't it? I think you talk to many gardeners that, you know, the best thing about their job is looking forward to going to work. And it's not often you get that. Somebody once said that you need to find something you love doing in life and then find somebody to pay you to do it. And, you know, I think we as gardeners are lucky enough to have that. I'm really pleased for you, Nigel, because the horticultural industry needs as many gardeners as we can get into it. So, look, thank you for joining us today on the line and very, very best of luck with your apprenticeship and your career. No, thank you very much. Now, the National Trust has over 400 holiday cottages. And in this next article, Staying Somewhere Special, travel writer Carolyn Boyd learned what it takes to create them and found out how it feels to stay overnight on a trust estate. Her words are read by Olivia Vinall. Old Gateway Cottage's soft yellow paint glows warmly in the afternoon sunshine. The cottage has a neat little path, a perfectly manicured lawn bordered by a stone wall, and a covered outside eating area. I drop my bags onto the kitchen's big family table and immediately feel at home. Like all of the National Trust's holiday cottages, there's more to Old Gateway Cottage than it first appears. It's a Grade two listed building, thought to date from the late 16th or early 17th century, and sits next to the 15th century gatehouse at the entrance to the Honeycutt Estate in North Somerset. Because I'm staying here, I can explore the estate after hours and get a small taste of what it might have been like to really live here. James Ingham, who has the rather lovely title of Head of Holidays, explains, There's something special or unique about all our cottages. 
Sometimes they're farm cottages or old workers' cottages on our estates, like this one. Some are really unusual. We have a Victorian water tower, a lighthouse keeper's cottage, and a 200-year-old pentagonal cobbler's shop. Each one has a history. The Trust has had holiday cottages since the 1930s, when some of its tenant farmers started offering accommodation to visitors, keeping things simple and low impact to ensure the land remained carefully conserved. Gradually, as the Trust attracted funds and members, it was able to afford to restore and renovate more disused and abandoned buildings on its estates. By 1973, it had 81 cottages. Today, it has over 400 across Wales, Northern Ireland and England, as well as campsites, bothies and bunkhouses. We'd like to add more holiday cottages to our collection over the next three years, says James. There are places where converting buildings into holiday cottages is a really good idea, and others where it might not be the right thing to do. The Trust's holiday cottage managers, who are each responsible for running several cottages, are really tuned in to what is right for their area. All money raised by holiday cottages goes right back into conservation work on that estate. Old Gateway Cottage is one of the Trust's most newly refurbished holiday cottages, and I'm one of the first people to stay here. Jane Smith, Holiday Cottages manager for Somerset, Cotswolds and Wiltshire, was responsible for fitting out and designing it, along with the other four holiday cottages on the Honeycutt estate. She explains, The buildings need to be somewhere we can install running water and electricity that can be made accessible to guests. Old Gateway Cottage was previously used as a ranger's cottage and then for volunteer accommodation. It became vacant after nearby buildings were developed as alternative staff lodgings. Whenever Jane designs a new cottage, she works with a team of suppliers to create the mood she wants, sometimes buying ready-made pieces, sometimes creating something bespoke. She wanted Old Gateway Cottage to reflect its location near Exmoor, but also to have a modern feel. I always take my lead from the style of the cottage, she says. I took inspiration for Old Gateway Cottage from local heathers for the greys, greens and yellows. Some of the fabrics are tweed for a countryside feel. There was no existing furniture from Honeycutt available for the cottage, so Jane framed some historic black and white pictures of the estate and made prints of some pencil drawings by an acquaintance of the Acklands, the family who lived at Honeycutt House. I want my holiday cottages to feel like a home, where you feel comfortable putting your feet up on the sofa, having a cup of tea and watching TV, she says. Once I've settled in, I take a long walk up to Selworthy Beacon on Exmoor and admire the heather that inspired Jane's decor. After taking in the views of South Wales from the blustery coastal path, I stroll down into Bossington through its thatched cottages and farms. My only diversion from the Honeycutt estate is for a pint of local cider in Porlock's oldest pub, but otherwise my whole walk is within the estate's border. As the late afternoon sun turns to dusk, I head back to my cottage, enjoying the feeling of having the estate to myself after the visitors have gone. Once I'm home, I sink into the sofa, put my feet up, and have that cup of tea. Olivia Vinall reading that article about Old Gateway Cottage. To book your own National Trust Holiday Cottage stay, call 0344 800 2070 or visit nationaltrust.org.au.
www.ghostbusiness.co.uk forward slash holidays. Now, in the last issue of the magazine, we launched a new series called An Object I Love. This issue, Elizabeth Green, lead curator for Wales, selects one of the more unusual items from the Trust's collection, a working steam locomotive from Penryn Gwyneth. The article is read by Glenn McCready. I joined the National Trust Wales curatorial team after completing my architectural training and a PhD in architectural history and spending a few years in private practice. I learnt the ropes on the vast estates of Snowdonia and Llyn, Plas Newith in Anglesey and Penryn Castle in Gwynedd, all of which I visited many times as a child. My parents brought me up on a diet of industrial archaeology, mountain walks and historic buildings, and I love this little Welsh steam locomotive from Penryn Quarry because for me it links all three. It also demonstrates that precious pieces in the Trust's collection don't always hang on a wall or sit in a case. Penryn Castle was built on the proceeds of sugar, slavery and slate. Throughout the 19th century, Lord Penryn's empire carved the world's finest roofing slates from the mountains of Snowdonia and exported them through his own port to the New World and beyond. In its heyday, Penryn Quarry employed over 3,000 quarrymen and Lord Penryn built a whole town, Bethesda, to house their families and provide for their educational and health needs. The quarry was the largest man-made hole on the planet, a vast, echoing place swarming with people and shaken by explosions, crashing rock and the clatter of horse-drawn wagons. But within a couple of generations, mechanisation took over, horses were no longer needed, and the air rang with the puff and whistle of steam locomotives like this one. Hugh Napier is a saddle tank locomotive, made in 1904 by the Hunslet Engine Company of Leeds to haul Penryn's slate wagons. Several were made, all named after Penryn family members. Mine was named after Hugh Napier, grandson of the second Baron Penryn, George Sholto. The second baron is best known for presiding over one of the world's longest industrial disputes, the Great Lockout, which lasted from 1900 to 1903. By the time it ended, 2,000 workers had left the area and the Bethesda community had changed forever. Hugh Napier was restored to working order in 2012, following years of fundraising and public donations at Boston Lodge, the engineering works of the historic Festiniog and Welsh Highland Railways. Restorers skillfully retained every piece that could be rescued and crafted exact copies of any working parts that were beyond saving. Hugh Napier now spends much of its year running on the Festiniog and Welsh Highland Railways, making occasional visits to Penryn Castle for special events. To me... This little locomotive represents the best and the worst of Penryn's story. Entrepreneurialism and industry, riches and poverty, international renown and local hatred. The team at Penryn is working to change perceptions, breaking down barriers between castle and community so that local people see Penryn for what it is, an important part of the nation's history and one that belongs to them. That was Glenn McCready reading about The Object Loved by curator Elizabeth Green. You can explore the Trust's online catalogue of collections at nationaltrustcollections.org.uk 
and Elizabeth will be holding a short talk about Hugh Napier at Penryn Castle near Bangor on Friday the 10th of May at 2pm. Places are limited, so please book early at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Penryn Castle. Now it's time to hear from you. Last issue's cover feature, The Great Gift, moved many of you to write. Oliver Broom of Dorset wrote about music in the mountains. The Great Gift article in the autumn issue evoked a fond memory. The headmaster of Thorns House School in Wakefield used to lead walking holidays in the Lake District for sixth formers during the Easter break. The inspiring music teacher of the school trained a prize-winning choir, and during the Easter 1953 holiday, we climbed to the summit of Bofell Mountain. We sat in a cairn hidden from view and sung from memory some of the part songs we'd learned in the choir. As we descended, we met an Australian climber, his eyes wide with awe. I thought it was the angels in heaven. It must have sounded truly magical to hear our young voices singing in perfect harmony, I was not the only member to go on to become a professional singer. Kate Longworth in Scotland was inspired by art. She wrote, Turning the pages of my autumn issue, I had one of those moments where everything stops. Curator Tanya Cooper was writing about the object she loves, that fabulous painting called A View Through a House by Samuel van Hoogstraten at Deerham Park in Gloucestershire. I've been visiting Trust Places for over 50 years, and Deerham Park was one of my family's favourites. I have stood in front of that painting so many times, totally absorbed by its inner life. In my late teens, I came into a little money, just enough to open a bank account and proudly write my first cheque, Life Membership of the National Trust. And the Hoogstraten painting had a lot to do with it. Thank you, Tanya, for bringing back so many memories. And Alan A. Hargreaves in Devon wrote to tell us about his change of mind. I have never had time for historic houses, which I thought of as blots on the landscape. That was until my daughters gave me trust membership for my 80th birthday. As soon as I entered my first property, I had tears in my eyes knowing I had missed out on visiting these amazing places. My goal is now to visit as many as I can. Thank you for the transformation it has made to my life. I hope the Trust continues to give pleasure to young and old alike for many decades to come. Do keep writing. We love to hear from you. We welcome your letters and we read every one of them. You can write to us at The Editor, National Trust Magazine, Helis, Kemble Drive, Swindon, Wiltshire, SN22NA. Email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash National Trust or tweet using at National Trust. Now before we wrap up this spring issue, it's time to hear about just a few things going on around the country this spring. Joining me now in the studio is Sally Palmer to take us through just a few of them. Sally, spring has certainly sprung around Trust Properties. Shall we start with the outdoors? Let's do that. Well, there's some great places to see spring blooms. Clifton's Gilded Gardens in Buckinghamshire from February to April, where you can see and smell the various narcissi planted in the ferneries. 
the making of a fragrant garden at Goddard's House and Gardens in North Yorkshire. On the 22nd and 23rd of March from 11.30 to 3pm, you can join a walk and talk on the revival of the spirit of the fragrant garden. And the head gardener's walk at Dufferin Gardens in the Vale of Glamorgan is always a delight. This is running on the 3rd of May from 11 to 12.30 with head gardener Chris Flynn. From Amaryllis to Magnolias, there's plenty to enjoy. And of course we can't forget Mother's Day. It's an annual spring celebration. So what's going on around the Trust for Mother's Day? The Mother's Day snowdrop planting at Saltram in Devon is on the 31st of March from 1 to 4pm. You can plant snowdrops with your mum before exploring the woods and gardens and treat yourself to tea in the Chapel Tea Room. Also on the 31st, there's Castle Ward in Bloom at Castle Ward in County Down, where you can learn the Victorian language of flowers and make your own posy with a message, and you and your mum can enjoy a house tour and have tea in the tea room. And there's a Mother's Day afternoon tea at Peckover House in Cambridgeshire, where you can enjoy an extra special tea in the Reed Barn Tea Room. Well, that's just a few things for you to do with your mum on Mother's Day. And finally, Sally, shall we finish with something from People's Landscapes? Of course. From the 23rd of March to the 9th of June at Dunham Massey in Cheshire, there's a year-long touring exhibition called Faces of Change, Nature's Champions. The exhibition is drawn from the National Portrait Gallery collection and the portraits include the gardeners, scientists and environmental activists who've transformed the way we experience the natural world. Thank you, Sally, for sharing those with us. And there's just a few of so many things going on in Trust Places throughout the spring. Well, that's all from us this spring issue. I hope you've enjoyed it and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk or you can call us on 01793 817 400. The National Trust magazine's Spring 2019 was presented by me, Alan Power. The readers were Olivia Vinall and Glenn McCready. It was produced for the National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding and is distributed by RNIB. All items are copyright. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine. <laughs>